Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. I am the Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Evidence is mounting that CNN really did pack the audience at the Trump town hall, really did seed the crowd with almost nothing but Trump supporters. Evidence is also mounting that CNN let Trump choose the moderator or at least veto other options to be the moderator. Evidence is also mounting that CNN let Trump pick which pro-Trump talking heads would appear on CNN after the fixed Trump rally ended. And evidence is also mounting that CNN chairman Chris Licht has intensified his criticism of the only CNN front-facing talent to dare to even lightly criticize the decision to prostitute the network for Trump, Oliver Darcy, and that Oliver Darcy is deciding whether or not to quit before he gets fired. It is the CNN Trump scandal, day six, and it is not only not going away, It is getting worse, and people need to be fired over it, and it is now bordering on the kind of television corruption that in the 1950s brought congressional investigations and grand juries. Because it is looking more and more like Chris Licht and CNN really did make Trump the deal Trump boasted he could not refuse, really did violate every tenet of journalism to make sure anybody watching at home would not only hear nothing but support for Trump at the rally, but also support for Trump after the rally. Now it is the former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie adding to claims that the audience at St. Anselm College in New Hampshire Wednesday night was not just 400 Republicans and independents planning to vote in that state's GOP primary, but in fact consisted solely 
of hand-picked Trump supporters. Christie was on ABC's This Week yesterday. To him, this is not even in doubt. Quote, as to the audience reaction, let's face it, CNN went in the tank to get Trump on there. They allowed him to negotiate who was going to be in that audience, and those were all Trump supporters. Again, Chris Christie is absolutely certain that CNN's claim that they seated 400 Republicans with various favorites is wildly untrue. Quoting him again, I know a lot of those people in that audience. I spent a lot of time in New Hampshire eight years ago, and a lot of those are the same faces I saw eight years ago. Neither you nor I would go into court over anything that Chris Christie says, especially not me. I've been in New Jersey. But Christie is merely echoing what Chris Sununu, who is merely the governor of New Hampshire, the Republican governor of New Hampshire, had said in an interview recorded earlier in the week for use on MSNBC yesterday. I knew pretty much everybody in that audience, Sununu also said, they're all Trump supporters. Again, absolutely no doubt in his mind either. The audience was absolutely filled with Trump supporters, so I wasn't surprised to hear the support. Asked if he would say there was a large percentage of Trump supporters there, he underscored this again. Quote, I would say almost all of them. Consider this for a moment. Putting on Trump in that format, live, where his filibusters could not be stopped and his lies happened too fast to be pushed back against by anybody, was indefensible enough. But it was not conclusive evidence of a plan to take 70 minutes of CNN primetime and devote it to making Trump look good and make it sound like everybody in New Hampshire loved him. It could still have just been Chris Licht's pervasive stupidity. But stacking the audience, filling it, I would say almost all of them with Trump cheerleaders, people the Republican governor of the state knew by sight, people the former Republican governor of New Jersey knew by sight, when Trump's latest polling numbers in that state were only at about 60 percent. That is rank corruption. And if it was a prerequisite for Trump doing the appearance on CNN, well, Chris Christie says that was a negotiation deal that Trump did with CNN. That is pure crookedness on Chris Licht's part. We were already in quiz show territory. The former Trump State Department appointee Matthew Bartlett told Puck News last week that if there was anybody in there who was not a Trump plant, they were warned not to let anybody know it. He said, quote, on CNN, it sure looked like Trump won over the crowd, but the reality was different in the room. The floor manager came out ahead of time and said, please do not boo Please be respectful. You were allowed to applaud. The question about Trump veto power over the moderator bubbled up the day after the CNN telecast. Quoting, pairing Caitlin Collins with Republicans who mostly voted for Trump in 2020, wrote Hugo Lowell in The Guardian, was as close to home turf as the campaign could get. The team said it would have rejected Jake Tapper. This would not be the first time something like that happened in the world of political television theater, but it makes it no less untoward. And The Guardian had something else that slipped right past me when I read it last week. You may remember that when this deal with the devil was first announced, it was reported from Trump-side sources that part of what he got 
was the assurance that there would be more Trump surrogates in the future on CNN. I thought that meant in the future future. The Guardian again, quote, the campaign also made sure the pre and post town hall coverage featured Trump surrogates on air. Former Trump White House press aide Hogan Gidley, pro-Trump Congressman Brian Mast and Byron Donalds, as well as pro-Trump Senator J.D. Vance. To sum it up, Trump rejected the obvious qualified choice for moderator. Trump chose the ultimate selection for moderator. Trump handpicked or had handpicked for him almost all of the 400 people in the audience. Trump or Chris Licht silenced any possibility that dissenting voices or reactions could be heard from the audience. And Trump prearranged to have some of his most loyal sycophants on the CNN set in the minutes after this disaster wrapped up. It is increasingly obvious that, never mind its journalistic impropriety, and the grotesque on-air spectacle it produced. Nothing about last Wednesday's CNN, Chris Licht, Donald Trump town hall was legitimate, ethical, or honest. And of course, what did all this pandering to and prostituting for Trump get Chris Licht and CNN? It got them a flood of stories from ex-Trump White House staffers Alyssa Farrah Griffin and Stephanie Grisham of, quote, countless cases of sexual harassment and inappropriate conduct by Trump while president, all of them hanging off the conversation that Trump had with Caitlin Collins on this subject during that town hall. It got Chris Licht and CNN an op-ed in the New York Times by the former Fox executive propagandist Bill Salmon, who was forced out of there by Tucker Carlson, praising CNN. That's not quite a letter endorsing Chris Licht written by Bill Cosby, but it is in the same vein. Oh, and then Trump, with the final thank you note, posted a doctored clip of the town hall with words being placed, I guess by AI, into Anderson Cooper's mouth, asserting that Trump had just, quote, been ripping us a new blank here at CNN. Of course, given what else Anderson Cooper said last week, insulting his own audience, who knows what he really thinks. Congratulations, Chris Licht. You got what you paid for. Which brings us back to Oliver Darcy. He is the CNN media reporter whose nightly email newsletter included external criticism of the town hall just hours after the fiasco ended and also included only one carefully phrased pulled punch. It was so polled, I thought he was critiquing Trump. You will recall, he wrote, it's hard to see how America was served by the spectacle of lies that aired on CNN Wednesday evening, which so enraged man baby Licht that Licht closed his internal conference call the next morning, praising himself by insisting that CNN had served America very well. Later that day, Licht called Darcy onto the carpet and per witnesses, put the fear of God into him, and left Darcy, quote, visibly shaken. But last night, Semaphore News reported new details of that meeting and a far more dire possible outcome. Quoting Max Tanney's piece, in the aftermath of the meeting and coverage, Darcy has wondered to colleagues whether he should resign or if he will be fired by the network. Paradoxically, the new reporting also indicates that the Darcy-Licked meeting may have been less confrontational than first thought. Again, quoting Semaphore, it ended relatively cordially with Licht telling Darcy that he supported him. 
then why on earth would Darcy be considering quitting or anticipating termination? Again, semaphore. A particularly bitter pill for some CNN employees was an anonymous comment from a licked ally to Fox News, unquote. Well, that comment, quoting the Fox report, a source said Licht received a, quote, ton of messages from CNN staffers appalled by Darcy's newsletter. The messages, according to the source, were like, quote, what the F? So now instead of bullying and threatening Oliver Darcy, we have Licht instead having a, quote, ally of his leak to, of all places, Fox, that CNN employees were No, no, all on Licht's side, not Darcy's side. There is the Chris Licht at MSNBC I knew and loathed. It was Licht, of course, who, when plucked from his failures at Late Night with Stephen Colbert, which had followed his failures at CBS Mornings, which themselves followed his failures on Morning Joe and Scarborough Country, it was Licht who vowed to make sure all voices were heard at the new CNN except the voice of Oliver Darcy, who also, again I note, still has not been publicly and non-anonymously supported by anybody else at CNN, who may or may not have had the fear of God put into him by Chris Licht, but who has clearly received the fear of unemployment. Much as it would seem to follow that it should be Licht living under that particular fear, it will not be. He has given his bosses exactly what they hired him for which raises an even bigger scandal and an even bigger crisis. Where does it say in this society that irresponsible anti-democracy partisans can buy one of the nation's largest news organizations and pervert it into Fox News without the stench? Why should there not be a Senate hearing as to what they gave Trump to be on their channel? All signs suggest Chris Licht cooked the books to make Trump look more accepted, more inevitable. At minimum, last Wednesday night, Licht tampered with whatever the balance is in the Republican primary. And there is no reason to suppose that Licht and Trump will not conspire again next year during the actual campaign to tip the scales and put a thumb on them on Trump's behalf. Ultimately, though, there was one detail in one largely overlooked story from over the weekend that confirmed that this mess, this deforestation of the CNN news brand in this disastrous Trump infomercial is really less about journalism or ethics and much more about the immeasurable ego of Chris Licht. The former Secretary of Labor, Robert Reich, wrote a fairly pedestrian piece about CNN's manifold failures here for the website Raw Story, and deep into it, Mr. Reich included something amazing. Quote, after I first criticized Licht for the direction he was pushing CNN, he phoned me. He was angry that I doubted his motives and said he took the top job at CNN because he, quote, believes in journalism. Robert Reich is an intelligent and accomplished man, a generous guest on TV shows, including those of mine a professor at Berkeley, a prolific writer and commentator, yet I think he would agree he does not carry enormous heft within journalism nor within the broadcasting business. 
Still shortly after his appointment to run what is certainly the most pervasive American-based journalistic operation in the world, whether electronic, digital, print, with a thousand things to learn and a thousand things to correct in the next thousand minutes, Chris Licht is calling up Robert Reich and angrily yelling at him because Reich doubted his motives. It is petty and stupid and wasting of time and small, which is Chris Licht in a nutshell. It is also amazing that Chris Licht could actually think anybody would doubt his motives. We all know his motives. As Trump realized when he set out to get Licht to change moderators, to pack the crowd with screaming Trump cultists, and to fill the postgame panel with his toadiest of supporters, we all know what Chris Licht and his motives are. All we are doing now is haggling over the price. Still ahead on this edition of Countdown, this whole construction news network feels it must have a Republican on. Republican makes illegitimate, surreptitious demands. Network says, sure. Anything else you need? It's really bad. But it is not really new. The GOP came in and did it at NBC in 2008. And that time the demand was get that Olbermann guy off MSNBC during the debates. Or John McCain won't show up to your debate. I'll tell you that sad story and the even sadder story of the cooperation of the network's supposed news icon who sold his soul during that time and helped the Republicans blackmail NBC in things I promised not to tell. Also ahead, you probably did not know the name Kevin Ettinger, unless you lived in the town of Hastings-on-Hudson, New York, at any point since oh, about the year 1960. And the fascists really think they've got something going with this quote, Biden scandal, unquote. Well, what's the scandal? Well, they don't know exactly. But the informant told the whistleblower. So where's this informant? <laughs> well, we don't know that either. We kind of, well, that's a funny story, but we kind of lost the informant. That's next. This is Countdown. You lost the informant. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating Cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, 
I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Format Shuffle again. Coming up, CNN making an illicit deal to give a Republican exactly the kind of coverage he wants. Well, it's really bad, but it's not really new. They did it to me 15 years ago, and they did it with the help of Tom Brokaw, collaborator. Things I promise not to tell coming up. Plus, Kevin Ettinger, 1933-2023. First, the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze, the Texas Congressman Troy Nels, the disgraced ex-cop so corrupt he was even fired by the police department of Richmond, Texas, for destroying evidence. Congressman Nels meets the minimum standard for membership in the Freedom Caucus. He's a dope. A terrorist from Afghanistan, Nels has tweeted, was just caught illegally crossing our southern border. How many other bad hombres made it through undetected? Uh, Nels, they, uh... They caught the guy at the border. You and and your fellow travelers claim is open and out of control. He was, uh, you know, nailed. This tweet is of the standard Republican kind that talks about how catching drug runners or wanted criminals at the border proves you can't catch drug runners or wanted criminals at the border. I'm not really sure anymore if Nels is this stupid or he just thinks his cultists are. So it's safer for us to assume that the answer is both. The bronze, Elon Musk, another super genius. The free speech absolutist has now explained that free speech absolutism means doing whatever the quasi-dictator of Turkey wants when he's on the verge of losing re-election. In response to legal process and to ensure Twitter remains available to the people of Turkey, we have taken action to restrict access to some content in Turkey today. In other words, Twitter censored accounts that had been critical of the Turkish strongman Erdogan. When some of his sycophants pointed this hypocrisy out to Musk, Musk angry, did your brain fall out of your head? He wrote to one, the choices have Twitter throttled in its entirety or limit access to some tweets. Which one do you want? 
As the head of Wikipedia replied, the choice is, of course, neither. You sue in Turkey to prevent the government from throttling you, and the courts would then protect Twitter the same way it did Wikipedia, only that would cost Elon Musk. Free speech, my Musk. But the winner, Chairman James Comer of the House Committee on... Eh... Republicans really aren't that smart. This is the guy who has spent every day of the new Congress promising he is about to blow the lid off the giant Biden scandal. And the giant Biden scandal turns out to be a rumor that there is a document that allegedly quotes a reported whistleblower supposedly claiming a Biden did something bad. Only nobody knows what it is or even if the document exists. And even Steve Ducey on Fox ripped the Republicans because they don't have even an allegation, let alone any proof. And now it turns out Comer has lost the whistleblower. You have spoken with whistleblowers, the incredibly gullible Maria Bartiromo said from behind her plastic sneeze guard in an interview with Comer yesterday on Fox. You also spoke with an informant who gave you all this information. Where's that informant today? Where are these whistleblowers? Bad, bad question, Maria. Well, Comer replied, we can't track down the informant. We're hopeful that the informant is still there. The whistleblower knows the informant. The whistleblower is very credible. Even Maria Bartiromo noticed that this is now Comer, rumor, document, whistleblower, informant, allegation. This is now sixth hand. And the start of the sixth hand chain is, you lost him. Bartiromo replied, hold on a second, Congressman. Did you just say that the whistleblower or the informant is now missing? Comer replied, well, we're hopeful that we can find the informant, but he's in the quote, spy business, unquote. So shrug emoji. Congressman Jamie, my dog ate my informant Comer. Today's worst person in the world! Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions. Actually, just one in this edition. Dateline Hastings on Hudson, New York. Fitting, this is, I guess, on what would have been my parents' 74th wedding anniversary. I had a lot of great teachers growing up. I have mentioned some of them before. In chronological order, Marceline Weiner, Marjorie Plant. Marjorie Plant was the one who had me write to Roald Dahl. Ellen Rice, Arthur Nathing. I interviewed him once on TV about Shakespeare. Walter Schneller, Randy McNaughton, Peter and Carol Gibbon, Frederick Nelson, Chuck Atwater, and one I skipped, and his name was Kevin Ettinger. And Kevin Ettinger died last week at the age of 90. Kevin Ettinger was my fifth grade homeroom and English teacher. And if you can imagine having to deal with me now for most of your work day, try to picture what that must have been like when I was eight and nine years old in the fifth grade. My range of emotions with Kevin was so vast that when my bosses at MSNBC wanted me to do a story on my own childhood back home in Hastings-on-Hudson, Kevin was the teacher I selected to interview, to roam those school hallways that I had not been in even then for more than 25 years. That's one end of that spectrum with him. The other end of the spectrum is the class picture from the fifth grade with all of us standing there in our best attire and Kevin in the back row in the middle. 
Well, at some point during fifth grade, I got a pen or maybe even a letter opener, and I stuck it through Mr. Ettinger's head in the picture. When I interviewed him in 1997 for MSNBC, I brought the picture with me and I asked him about it. Yeah, what's going on here, he asked. Could have been a lot of things. You and I, hmm, we clashed a lot. Do you remember the thing about the balk rule by any chance? Suddenly, I was in a classroom at the Farragut School in Hastings-on-Hudson, New York, in the early spring of our year of the Lord, 1968, and Kevin Ettinger and I were in a knockdown, drag-out, verbal war in front of the rest of the fifth-grade class about the baseball balk rule. You're the expert, he said to me. What happens when there's a balk? And I said, well, the runner or runners advance one base and the batter goes to first base. The batter does not go to first base, Keith. It escalated from there. Mr. Ettinger finally said, go home tonight, get that baseball encyclopedia you always bring in here, look up the rule, then bring in the encyclopedia tomorrow, tomorrow morning. If I'm wrong, I'll stand up in front of the class and read the rule out loud and apologize to you. But if you're wrong, you'll stand up in front of the class and read the rule out loud and apologize to me. Deal? That day, I ran home. The next morning... I did not run back to school. 6.02, pitcher illegal action. Yeah, I was the one standing up reading the balk rule to our fifth grade class because no, the batter does not get awarded first base on a balk. Not even in 1968 he didn't. To be fair, a year before I barely knew the difference between a baseball and a bass drum, so some of the subtleties of the game were still new to me. So, I said, Mr. Ettinger was right, and I was wrong, and I apologize. I paused. He looked at me and said, I accept your apology. You can sit down now, Keith. I continued to stand, and I continued to talk. So, Mr. Ettinger was right this time, but I still know more about baseball than he does, and next time I'll get it right, and he'll get it wrong. Thank you. I'm thinking this was a Thursday, maybe even a Friday, because in my mind, the turnaround to what happened next, the inevitable postscript to this story, was almost immediate. My mother was the secretary to the minister at our Unitarian church, which was of itself hilarious, because my father was a world-class atheist. I mean, he was nationally ranked. He could use the Bible to disprove all aspects of all religions to ministers. Meanwhile, I was the only kid I know who stopped going to Sunday school because there just was not enough fire and brimstone in it, and I was bored. Anyway, apparently one of the regular Sunday school teachers was sick or had to leave town or something, and my mom had to pick the fill-in. And Sunday, she and I, and for some reason my father, get in the car to go to church. I guess Dad needed the laugh. And I'm in the back, and suddenly we're not going the normal route to the church. And I say, what's up? And Mom says, oh, I told you we have to have a substitute Sunday school teacher, and we have to give him a lift. You'll like this. The substitute Sunday school teacher is Mr. Ettinger. Next thing I know, Mr. Ettinger is in the back seat of our car with me, and he is needling me over the balk rule, and I am now saying, you know, we are not in school right now. You are not in charge. This is my dad's car, and I don't have to take this crap from you. Now, mind you, as he's saying what he said, and I'm saying what I said, we are also laughing. 
It is one of those kinds of friendships, only I'm eight years old. I guess that's why I both enjoyed being in Kevin Ettinger's class so much and also stabbed out his head with a pencil or a pen or a letter opener. With certain limitations, he always treated me as an adult. And even though I left that school and went to another one two years later, I continued to see him in town off and on, sometimes on purpose, usually by accident for the next 43 years. And he was a great friend of my dad and he was a great friend of my mom. And sometimes I'd run into my dad with Kevin at the train station, at the Hastings Diner, wherever. Also, among other things, you couldn't avoid him. Kevin lived across the street from the school from the time I met him until the last time I checked in on him. He lived across the street from the gym right next to the school. If you drew a line between two of the three great municipal edifices of the small town of Hastings on Hudson, New York, Farragut School and the Chemka Town Swimming Pool, if you drew a line, the midpoint would have been just about Kevin Ettinger's front door. Over the years, he helped me with a book I was writing. He came with me to at least one Yankees game. He did that interview I mentioned. And we waited from the school year of 1967-68 when I had him in the fifth grade until the school year of 1978-79, by which time I was a college senior. And in his fifth grade class that year was my sister Jenna. Two Aldermans in one lifetime, he said. What did I do to deserve that? I did not hesitate in answering him. The balk rule thing, I said. It is hard to imagine that Farragut School, which I always thought was on Farragut Parkway, not Farragut Avenue, but at some point they switched the names. I swear, Parkway became Avenue and Avenue became Parkway. Anyway, Farragut School was built in 1903, and it was named for Admiral David Dam the Torpedoes Full Speed Ahead Farragut, who actually lived in Hastings in the 19th century. Anyway, it's hard to imagine that Farragut School can possibly stay open with Kevin Ettinger gone. Hell, it's hard for me to imagine Hastings on Hudson will stay open. The great sculptor Jacques Lipschitz lived in Hastings. He created a giant piece for the library that's still there. Billy Burke, the good witch from The Wizard of Oz, lived there. The wizard himself, Frank Morgan, lived there. I don't think at the same time. Original publisher of the New York Times, Adolph Oaks, lived there. Ricky Lake was from there. She went to school with my sister. The late John Saunders, my old ESPN colleague. But to me, Kevin Ettinger was Hastings on Hudson, New York. In 1991, in Los Angeles, where I was working and living, I opened up a letter from my dad, and inside the envelope was a clipping from the New York Times about Kevin Ettinger playing stickball every Sunday morning on the giant blacktop playground behind Farragut School, the one I played tag on and punch ball on, the one I first traded baseball cards on, and best of all, the one I first muttered oaths about Kevin Ettinger on. He had started a thing called the Ethical Softball League there on that giant, giant playground. I mean, I think it was in two different time zones. He'd started this Ethical Softball League there in 1970, and the neighbors were a little upset at the noise on Sunday mornings. On the other hand, he lived across from the street. He was one of the neighbors. Sixteen years later, I buy a copy of the New York Times, to go do the crossword puzzle over breakfast, and there's another article about Kevin Ettinger and the Ethical Softball League of Hastings on Hudson, New York, and about how everybody else refers to him as the commissioner, and in part, they called him the commissioner because at the age of 74, he could still throw fastballs and strike out those whippersnapper 50-year-olds. 
And in part, they also called him the commissioner because he was the one to whom they always deferred when there was a question about the rules. Well, I could have told them that. Goodbye, Mr. Ettinger. And thank you. And no, next time there is a baseball dispute, you will not be wrong. And I will not be right. You win. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The demand for spots in the Shea Stadium press box that night was so great that there was assigned seating. I had no real reason to be there, but as usual, the New York Mets took care of me. And so on Friday, the 5th of September, 2008, I was shoulder to shoulder with reporter friends watching the Mets begin to blow their three-game pennant race lead against the Philadelphia Phillies. Sorry, Mets fans, for bringing this up again. Brett Myers had just struck out New York's David Wright looking when my phone rang. It was my agent, Gene Sage. They just called, she said flatly. You and Matthews have been fired from anchoring the presidential debates because of what you said. What I had said had been said three nights previously. 
Chris Matthews and I were co-anchoring the Republican convention on MSNBC. He was there in Minneapolis. I was in the studios in New York, ostensibly so I could also anchor hurricane coverage, although it was pretty clear that at least half the reason I was not in Minneapolis was because the Republicans had threatened NBC or said they couldn't guarantee my safety or something like that, and NBC folded. So I was the one during MSNBC's coverage of the 2008 Republican convention who had to throw it to a video they were introducing that we had been told by the Republicans was a, quote, tribute to the dead of 9-11. It was, in fact, a snuff film. All of the images that all of the networks had stopped showing within weeks or even days of the attacks, all of those images were in this video. People jumping and falling to their deaths from the World Trade Center on 9-11. Endless replays of the planes hitting the towers. Dismembered bodies in the plaza. The building collapses. The equally terrifying scenes at the Pentagon. And all with a grotesque Robert Davi voiceover emphasizing that this was all the Democrats' fault. The message was simple. Elect Obama and you will die like this. I was angry, just on that base level. For the five and a half years I had been back at MSNBC, we had been rigorous about not showing any of that video. There were rules that if we had to for some reason, we should show only the still images, and even then, only with extensive warnings to the viewers. But I knew from my conversations with the president of MSNBC, Phil Griffin, who I'd only known for 28 years at that point, that he would insist that on the scene in Minneapolis, Matthews and Tom Brokaw, whose career at NBC I had resurrected after Brian Williams had buried him alive two years earlier, that one or both of them would rebuke the GOP for showing not a 9-11 tribute, but as I just said, a 9-11 snuff film. The video ended and we came out to Brokaw with Matthews and Brokaw kind of coughed, and Matthews said, well, and he turned to Brokaw and said in that loose fire hose delivery of his, Tom, the kind of underscores the terrorism, big thing for Republicans as they try to stop Obama. Brokaw droned on approvingly. <laughs> the Republicans sneaking a snuff film of banned video onto MSNBC, and, and by the way, also onto CNN, onto NBC, onto CBS, onto ABC, without any warning, that was not mentioned by Brokaw or Matthews. Back to New York and Keith. I was supposed to ad-lib a tease about what we were expecting from the Republican convention for the rest of the night and then throw to a commercial. Instead, I said, and this is a paraphrase, the original tape disappeared that night, that before we moved on, I felt I needed to apologize that we at MSNBC, and for that matter, NBC News, had extremely strict rules about not showing that video the Republicans had just shown you without any warning, without any context. And we certainly would not have shown the horror and death and blamed it on the Democrats, or for that matter, blamed it on the Republicans. I said, if we had done such a thing ourselves, there would have been people fired at NBC News. The public program the GOP provided said that was going to be a 9-11 tribute film, I said, and so did the private conversations with the network, which included the reminder from NBC and MSNBC that we had rules against showing the scenes of the horrible death and mutilation and destruction. So I apologized on behalf of whoever trusted the Republicans to live up to their word that MSNBC viewers were forced to see the video our network had long before vowed never to show again. So three nights later, without as much as an email, this Griffin guy had called my agent and told her I was fired, Matthews too, 
from our further coverage of the upcoming McGain-Obama debates. She related these details to me as I walked down the many ramps in the back of Shea Stadium towards the subway. I told her to call Griffin back and tell him I had quit on the spot right then and he could work his way out of the ensuing disaster. Liberal network MSNBC fires liberal host Elberman for criticizing conservatives for sneaking 9-11 snuff film onto MSNBC. He could figure that out any way he wanted. And he could hear my response on, I don't know, Good Morning America, CBS This Morning, the PBS NewsHour, and any other news program that bothered to ask me to stop by and talk. I phoned my live-in girlfriend, Katie Turr, and told her I was on my way home, and I made a few phone calls to friendly voices within the NBC management structure and got from them a clearer picture of what had happened. And despite the spotty cell service along the elevated line heading back to Manhattan, I got a message from a newspaper reporter friend who neatly tied together all that I was hearing elsewhere. Tom Brokaw is going around NBC saying he got you fired from the debates because the Republicans told him to. Nine, maybe ten months earlier, Phil Griffin had come to me and asked me if I would be okay with this guy who had been kind of disappeared by the network, Tom Brokaw was his name, appearing during our weekly coverage of the Democratic and Republican primaries. Just a couple of minutes, like from a perspective desk, that's all he wants to do. He, he's really, Tom's really unhappy. Brian uh, has frozen him out of everything. Brian Williams, of course. I was appalled but not surprised. The power had gone to Brian's head, and of course there it had not met much resistance. Plus, as I said to Griffin, you're asking me if I'd like to add Tom Brokaw's experience and Tom Brokaw's gravitas to stuff I'm anchoring when I'm not sure I know as much as I really need to know to do this right? You're asking me this. Tom fit in beautifully, and twice after those long Tuesday evenings in the primary season, he sent me brief emails awarding me what he called the game ball because he was so impressed by my ability to balance the roles of political anchor and political commentator. Having tried this myself, one of them read, I know what a perilous tightrope this is, game ball to KO. I'm mocking him now, but these meant so much to me, I printed the emails out and carried them in my wallet. And now he was claiming he had gotten me fired because, as my newspaper friend said, the Republicans told him to. That was not hard to unpack either. Tim Russert had died on June 3rd of that year. I anchored that night until 2 in the morning. It was still an open wound. There were still tears. We didn't know it then, but the structure of NBC News and the perilous tightrope balancing NBC and MSNBC had died with Tim Russert. So did the role of moderator of the second debate between John McCain and Barack Obama, scheduled for about a month after my subway ride on October 7th in Nashville. Tim had not even been buried yet when Brokaw began to angle to get that assignment, along with brushing away the dirt of his petty-ante role on the MSNBC perspective desk, we never saw him again, in order that he could take Tim's spot as Brian Williams' sidekick on Big NBC. The month before, August, there was a story coming out of the east end of the third floor at 30 Rock, where NBC News management sat around not doing much of anything, that a Republican goon named Ed Gillespie had been in there with Griffin and the NBC News president, Steve Kappas, trying to get me silenced or fired or off the convention coverage or something, and that somebody prominent within NBC News was in there with Gillespie or was invoked by Gillespie, the rumor mill wasn't certain. 
As I switched from the elevated 7 train to the underground F train, the whole thing came together. Before my comments about the GOP convention 9-11 snuff film, Ed Gillespie had come in and had somehow vaguely threatened Kappas and Griffin about me, using as leverage the debate which Tom Brokaw was now supposed to moderate. And when I apologized for their video on our air, Gillespie must have turned it into an either-or. Get rid of me or McCain would refuse to participate in any debate moderated by Brokaw or anybody from NBC News. And Brokaw had already come back from the dead once in 2008, and he would be damned if he would be forced to do it a second time. But as the train took me home to an apartment I was now going to have to sell, since I had just quit MSNBC on the spot for folding to such obvious Republican blackmail, something else now occurred to me. Why would MSNBC or NBC or our parent corporation at the time, GE, actually think that they could remove me from the debate coverage on MSNBC, where the Rachel Maddow show had yet to be born, and the three times a night my show ran accounted for something like 60% of the entire day's network audience, and do that without getting a really bad reaction from our audience? Plus, if a newspaper man already knew the Brokaw part... How could this story be avoided? MSNBC announced it had removed its liberal star, Keith Olbermann, from coverage of the McCain-Obama presidential debates. Sources confirmed former NBC News anchorman Tom Brokaw, now an MSNBC commentator on Olbermann's coverage, had helped the Republican Party to blackmail NBC into the decision. Olbermann immediately resigned, saying, quote, in succumbing to this coercion on behalf of John McCain, NBC has now forfeited any right to further be called a news organization, and I'm sad to say MSNBC, which I built, is now dead. My God! MSNBC, and NBC News for that matter, would have committed corporate suicide before the weekend was over. At that point, it dawned on me that the only thing that could save the credibility of the whole news division and the careers of Griffin and Kappas and NBC Network president Jeff Zucker, and especially the career of Tom Brokaw, was for me to publicly state that I had asked to be removed from anchoring the debates because the whatever was just too much blah, blah, blah for me, and I felt I should stick to the post-debate analysis and commentary. NBC would now have a choice. They could fire me from the debates and destroy everything, including the $100 million a year or so in profit that NBC made off MSNBC, or I could, you know, lie and claim it was my idea, and save everybody's ass, including my own. I got out of the subway and raced home. Katie met me at the door with a big hug. She had been crying. Relax, I said. I'm not quitting. In fact, I'm going to get a huge raise now. Listen carefully. I called my agent, and I explained the idea that had lit over my head on the subway like a light bulb to both of them. I said, you call Phil Griffin back and explain to him that I will personally save his job and Steve Kappas's and Jeff Zucker's and Tom Brokaw's and everybody else's. I'll take the fall. Instead of letting them all get fired by the MSNBC audience, I'll say, this was my idea. And all it will cost, Phil, is $12 million. And he has to leak the terms so everybody knows it cost him $12 million. And she paused for a second and said, it's genius. It might not quite be 12 million, but I bet, I bet they'll pay you at least nine. 
On Sunday, several news organizations reported I had asked to be taken off the anchor desk. Two months and one week later, the New York Times wrote, quote, Keith Olbermann, the anchor of Countdown on MSNBC, has extended his contract through the next presidential election season, the network announced. Mr. Olbermann and MSNBC essentially tore up the four-year, $4 million year contract they signed last year and replaced it with one worth about $7.5 million a year. So that was a $3.5 million raise for four years for a total of... $14 million, except the new contract added two years to my old deal, so the raise was actually $22 million. All stories have a punchline. This punchline is about Tom Brokaw. We would have gotten away with this cleanly. NBC would have gotten its money's worth for the $22 million in hush money, which is what it was that it had to pay me because I had agreed with them rolling over for the Republican Party blackmail, except Brokaw could not keep his mouth shut. So proud was he of preserving his role as the moderator of the October 7th NBC debate that he had to explain in explicit detail in public how he went to his bosses at NBC News and threatened them on behalf of the GOP. On September 29, 2008, a lengthy and glowing Brokaw profile appeared in the New York Times. Quote, Mr. Brokaw said that over the summer he had, quote, advocated within the executive suite of NBC News to modify the anchor duties of the MSNBC hosts Keith Olbermann and Chris Matthews on election night and on nights when there were presidential debates. Mr. Brokaw said he had also conducted some shuttle diplomacy in recent weeks between NBC and the McCain campaign. His mission, he said, was to assure the candidate's aides that despite some negative on-air commentary by Mr. Olbermann in particular, Mr. McCain could still get a fair shake from NBC News, unquote. Oh, that was his mission? The hell it was. Happily, Brokaw just could not resist boasting even further. The next sentence actually reads, quote, Mr. Brokaw said he had been told by a senior McCain aide, whom he did not name, that the campaign had been reluctant to accept an NBC representative as one of the moderators of the three presidential debates until his name was invoked. Quote, one of the things I was told by this person was that they were so irritated, they said, if it's an NBC moderator for any of these debates, we won't go, Mr. Brokaw said. Quoting him again, my name came up and they said, oh, hell, we have to do it because it's going to be Brokaw. There is a second punchline. After all this, when the new format came out and I was sitting there counting my money, MSNBC had David Gregory, quote, anchor, unquote, the debate coverage. David was terrific during this. Practically all this meant anyway was that I was on the air until literally 90 seconds before each debate began, which is when I said, now here's David Gregory. And he was then on for four or five minutes after the debate ended, which is when he said, now here's Keith Olbermann. And on election night itself, with David again formally anchoring, per the Republican blackmail, at 10.59 p.m., to his great credit and to my eternal gratitude, David Gregory said, with the last voting booth closing at 11 p.m., NBC News can now project the winner of the 2008 presidential election. Keith? Bless him. Plus, I still have all the money.
moral. Whether it's CNN in 2023 or MSNBC in 2008, the Republicans not only work the media refs, they will bribe the media refs. We do not have liberal bias in American media. We have conservative bias. I've done all the damage I can do here. Here are the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments from Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer was my friend Richard Lewis, and everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's countdown for this, the 860th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Don't forget to keep arresting him while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Until then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.